So we're in week three of this series by an odd name, but if you, unless this is your first night, you know exactly what we've been talking about, How to Eat Your Bible. It's loosely a book study by Nate Pickowicz, and that's the one in the picture. If you want to get a copy, I recommend it. It's an easy read. You can read it in a few days. Uh, great. It's got a modified. We'll talk about this next week as our last week of this four-week series. So we'll talk about toward the end of the book, it's got a, a seven-year Bible reading plan. You say, wow, that sounds like a lot of time. But what he does is he takes uh, MacArthur's Bible reading plan, and he just puts a subtle twist on it. And so... Um, it's great. We'll talk a little bit about that next time. Tonight, we're in week three, we're going to talk about, as your notes say, chapter four would be in the book, if you're reading the book. St- uh, study, what does it mean? Okay, so study, not just reading. We already talked about reading, so now we're going one step further. We're talking about studying, what does it mean? We talked about reading, what does it say? Now we talk about studying, what does it mean? I will open us in prayer, and then we will jump in. Lord, I ask that your uh, spirit would guide tonight and would give us understanding as to what you put in the pages of the scripture that we're talking about and spending a little bit of time looking at different ones. Help us to honor the context of each passage that we're in, especially since we are jumping around, uh, and honor what you inspired when you put every word on the page for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've Every week, I've introed with this thought, so I want to intro it again, just for repetition's sake, so you lock it down in, in your memory, and if you don't already realize this, I really do think we're going through a famine in this country, especially for God's word. But the weird thing about this famine is it's intentional. We're starving ourselves. There's no scarcity or shortage of the product, in this case, the product being God's words, but an unwillingness or a lack of desire to consume what God says. And so this book, How to Eat Your Bible, talks a little bit about, okay, what's the cure for this? And he gives you some great tips. So we'll talk a little bit about what the book covers, but then we'll also branch off on our own and and cover some things that I think are crucial as we walk through this topic. So I want to equip you with resources as we go through. I've got a couple books over here that I'll mention later. But right off the bat, one of the resources that I would recommend to you that I was listening to from last week. It's a podcast, and you can get on his website, you can listen to it there, or you can download his app, you can listen to it there. Or if you use podcasts, you can listen to it there. It's Alistair Begg. He's Scottish. He sounds great. I mean, listening to this guy is just like, it's, he's great. His last name is B-E-G-G, Begg, Alistair Begg. Uh, the podcast is called Truth for Life. I don't know if you've heard of that or heard of any of his stuff. Truth for Life, but specifically last Tuesday and last Wednesday, October 11th and October 12th, um, he's breaking up a series right now talking about expository preaching. So it's called What Happened to Expository Preaching, and he's talking about the importance of feeding on not just parts of God's Word, but all of it. So here's what, I stole this quote from him. Here's what he says. I love it. He says, it's, it, it is possible to eat a lot, and again, just like Nate in the book that we're going through He's comparing consuming and feeding on God's word with actual food, actual nutrition, because in a sense it is. He says, it's possible to eat a lot yet remain malnourished because not all food is nutritious. That's very true. So we'll be sitting at the dinner table. He goes on to say, it's similarly possible to be spiritually starved even if you attend church regularly. And then he's asked the question, what's missing? So we'll talk about that tonight and then also next week. So when you sit at the dinner table sometimes, you realize, especially if you have kids, so we have two girls, and we have to tell them, you know, I'll go, we'll buy more chicken breasts than we need, and I'll grill the chicken breasts. And then that night, the first night, we'll have them fresh with asparagus and baked potatoes, let's say. And the girls have to eat all a little bit of of everything, right? We don't, they don't have their own custom menu. Um, My mom told us from... Not like in an inserting her, this is how you're supposed to raise your kids way, but she told us right off the bat, she said, they will not starve. <laughs> if you make them eat something, trust me, they won't starve. So uh, they may go to bed hungry once or twice, and they realize you're not kidding. But So we're sitting at the table, and we, we then, after we eat the chicken breast that time, we put the extras, we always, we will buy extras intentionally. So we put the extras in the fridge. Well, then a couple nights later, we'll pull them out. We'll slice them up real thin, we'll dice up some bell peppers, throw it on the cast iron skillet, 
and cook fajitas. And then so Lauren will also make fresh guacamole. And when you have guacamole, you have to have chips. So we'll have some tortilla chips at the table. So the girls, all they want is chips and, now guacamole has nutrition in it, but sour cream. Sour cream has basically none, nor do the chips, really. I mean, I guess they have a little iodine if you don't use sea salt, but I mean, that's it. So they're like, I want, I, want the, I want more chips, I want more sour cream. And they could just fill up on that. And we're trying to explain to them, look, because we love you, that you can have a little bit of that with your meal, but that's not where the nutrition is from. The proteins from the chicken, vitamin C and other stuff is from the bell peppers. So you, you need to eat the fajitas. They just don't get this. So that's sometimes how we treat God's word, that we come to it and we say, okay, I just want to skim the surface. I don't want to dig with any depth. You know, I, I want to jump around and pick passages that I like. I don't want to deal with the passages that I'm uncomfortable with or maybe, um, maybe don't taste the best at first, but they are good for me. And so I love that quote. Again, that was Alistair Begg, Truth for Life, What Happened to Expository Preaching. It's the podcast from last Tuesday and last Wednesday. Okay, Psalm 38, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, 8, as we begin in the section in your notes that's labeled introduction, Psalm 34.8 says this. Um, some of you may already know this, but some of you may not. When we talk about eating God's word and you think, that's a weird idea, where'd you come up with that? Well, God's word itself speaks of it as being nutrition and being something that we taste and we consume. Psalm 34.8, chapter 34, verse 8 says... And you may have heard of a worship song, that uh, worship chorus that sings this song. It's fantastic. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see. They're talking about the senses. So you can look and see that God's good, but there's a taste to it too. So there's even this idea when you're studying God's word and you're not just reading it. It's the idea all throughout the scripture of chewing it, tasting it, um, is an important part of loving God's word, learning to love God's word. Just like I love red bell peppers, but I didn't the first time I put one in my mouth when I was a kid. Most kids don't. But over time, your palate grows. I guess you mature and you learn to, I could eat them raw or cooked. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. You learn to love something by really enjoying it. So if I asked you to close your eyes for just a second and think, what is, imagine your favorite cut of steak. The correct answer, the best answer, other than filet mignon, the best answer would be ribeye. That is the correct answer. But for some of you that don't like ribeyes, it's something else. But imagine your, your favorite cut of steak cooked perfectly. Maybe there's blood coming out. Maybe there's none. It's cooked, you know, crispy. But just imagine that for a second. You can taste it, can't you? The, the taste memory comes up. What does your favorite ice cream taste like? Is it rocky road? Is it smooth? Does it have anything in it? Is it, uh, um, H-E-B is about to eclipse Bluebell, by the way. They're coming out with some winners. Uh, their pumpkin pie is amazing. Uh, but yeah, what does your favorite ice cream taste like? Mardi Gras king cake. Bluebell makes it. It's incredible. What's your favorite ice cream? You, you, you taste it. You learn to love it and taste it. And if you scarfed it down without tasting it very much, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't be able to recall the taste or the smell or the texture because you just, and that's it. And so it talks about God's word of just chewing it, digesting, taking every part that's in it and and letting it nourish you. Now, before we go on, I want to clarify something real quickly that I said last week. So I want to explain a little bit more because I I wanted to make sure no one misunderstood. When we were talking about choosing a translation to read from, and I was comparing A, word-for-word translations, with B, thought-for-thought where they add some extra words to give you the flavor of the passage that aren't in the original language necessarily, word for word versus thought for thought. When I was talking about that, I mentioned that I wouldn't recommend doing all your reading in just a thought for thought translation, like the NIV or the NLT. If you have your favorite study Bible in a translation that you can easily understand, and that happens to be the NIV or NLT, keep reading that one. I wasn't implying that you should set that aside somehow or something like that. But I would also look for a good word-for-word translation as well, especially if you're studying, and particularly in this case, if you're studying a passage in depth, I would check the New King James. I would look at how the ESV puts it. Then you might look at the NASB 
or the new version of that that's also fantastic and accurate is the NET, the net. Um, What you're ultimately doing is getting as close as you can to the original language used. So here's why that's important. When the thought-for-thought translations put in extra words, they usually do a great job, by the way, uh, to help with context and understanding, sometimes they don't quite get it right. And checking a more literal translation will help anchor you more closely to what the original author wrote. You following me? So I think that's really what I meant to say. Um, But sometimes the thought-for-thought translations do get it right when a more literal word-for-word does not. Let me show you an example. Go to 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. 1 Peter, not 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. So I'm going to read it in the NIV and the NLT which I brought up, remember last time I was talking about read from this, don't read from this because it can distract you. But these two versions, I'm actually going to read from this. That's the advantage. You can pull up any translation you want on the fly. So that's the advantage of this. Um, Okay, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. So let me show it to you in the NIV and NLT, and then let me show it to you in something else. So these are where I think they they get it right. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives in the same way, and it had just finished addressing servants. Submit yourselves to your own husband. It's talking about authority structure. Submit yourselves to your own husband so that, listen, if any of them, the husband, do not believe the word, they may be, this is the NIV, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they observe, when they see your purity and reverence of your lives. In other words, what wins them is not the talk, 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 talk. Yes, you're going to tell him, but don't nag him with your words, is basically what Peter's getting at. Tell him, but then show him with your life. Because he's, if he's heard the words already, okay, he's got that. Show him with your life, that that's a more effective witness. Okay, that's a great way to handle that translation. Here's the New Living Translation, the NLT. Also handles it well. It says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some, the husbands, Refuse to obey the good news. Interesting. Um, Your godly lives will speak to them without any words. And they will be won over by observing your pure pure and reverent lives. But you see, there's still a message there. Even though they're not talk, 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 talking, they're showing what their lives. Well, if you look at, they've, they've fixed it. If you look at the old, so here's a reverse example of where the thought for thought I think did a really good job handling that idea. And uh, there's a word-for-word translation that does not. (laughs) So they fixed it now, though. So when you go to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, Holman, they basically, they got tired of paying NIV or whoever they used the royalty, so they made their own translation. Every time they quoted something in their Sunday school material, like uh, Lifeway, they'd have to pay royalty. So they made their own. Okay, so the first version of it handled this verse horribly. It says, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Here's what it said, but they fixed it. I'll read to you the newer version. So here's the old Holman Christian Standard Version. They would call it the HCSB. The new one they've shortened to CSB. It's the same name, though, Christian Standard. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be, listen, they may be won over without a message by the, way their li- by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. That's a horrible translation. The, the point is it's not speech, it's actions. But her actions is the message. That's, that's Peter's whole point. Why would you say they're not one over, that they're one over without a message? So they, they've fixed it, which is good. So if you look at the new CSB, the new Holman Christian Standard Bible, it, uh, let me pull it up here. Should have marked it. Oh, I did. Okay, First Peter 3. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they, the husband, may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. So they, they fixed it. They corrected that uh, really blunder. But so, yeah, so that was what I meant to say when I was distinguishing between those two. I wouldn't, especially if you're studying a passage in depth, I would also make sure you check a word-for-word translation, not just these dynamic thought-for-thought, because a lot of times they do a fantastic job, but sometimes they don't quite get at the point as, as clearly or as succinctly. So a question as we get started, uh, the last part of our introduction, then we'll jump into section one, the clarity of Scripture. 
question, what do you find the most difficult in studying God's Word? Last time we asked about reading God's Word. So a little bit different. Maybe there's some overlap in your answer, but a little bit different question. What do you find the most difficult in studying God's Word? Not just reading it for a daily reading, but really digging in and studying, okay, what does this say? How does it apply? Observing the, the passage. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. Or you have commentaries to, that you might grab one. Um, Wearsby, Warren Wearsby is a good, just plain Jane, tell me like it is, you know, kind of, a, kind of a deal. Yeah, anybody else? Context. Context of what's going on. Sometimes it's hard to grab or immediately see it. Anybody? What do you find the most difficult for you as you're studying a passage? Leslie's thinking the same thing I told you last week. Same thing when you asked me what's about reading. Uh, Anybody else? Anything? Okay, so the Bible contains theology. It contains history. It contains cultural background. (laughs) It contains prophecy. It contains symbolism. So the book is timeless. In other words, it's always true. But it contains things that require study. So you have to do the work of studying God's Word. It doesn't just magically download into your brain. I wish it could sometimes. It doesn't magically just download into your brain when you sleep. It just doesn't work, you know, so it takes the work of studying. Okay, section one, the clarity of Scripture, and then we'll look at section two, interpretation. We won't be in section one as long. Section one talks about the clarity of Scripture in your notes. So in the past, some churches have taught that the Bible is going way back, is too difficult for you to understand. So unless you go to seminary, unless you study, unless you train to be a minister, you can't understand it, and so you shouldn't study it. And they would say things like, the attitude of just leave it to the professionals. I mean, look, that might be good for your electrician's work in your house, but that's not so for the Bible. Just just leave it to the professionals attitude. And sometimes we understand why people would think that. And, and, you know, like prayer before meals, sometimes people have that attitude. When my, thanks, my family's Thanksgiving, who do they usually ask to lead the Thanksgiving prayer? My dad will look right at me. Um, <laughs> said, hey, son, pray. Uh, when we get together for Christmas, what's hilarious is my wife's family, so, um, so there's two girls, just my wife and her older sister, that's it. So her sister married a, a pastor's son. He pastored, uh, y'all know who Bo Pilgrim is, Pilgrim's Pride? So he pastored him, his church, for a long time over in East Texas. Great guy, went to be home with the Lord a couple years ago. Um, so, but she married his, uh, his son. So he was a PK, he was a pastor's kid. So, and it was funny, it's all their, their extended family would get together for Christmas, and then they say, well, who should pray for Christmas well, there's like, well, who's the closest person to a professional? <laughs> Which is, it's a silly idea, it really is. But that's how we think sometimes. They said, who's the closest to a professional? Well, it would be Boone, Daniel. They call him Boone. So they all look at him and he would pray. Well, then a few years later, I come into the picture. And so then they go, okay, well, now it's Boone. And he's fine with it, by the way. And he goes, okay, ask him to pray. So, um, but what does God say? Does God say, just leave it to the professionals? No, but that's the way in church history, embarrassingly, many churches have, have taught it that way. Oh, this is, hey, this, don't worry about this. This is too complex. You can't handle it. In fact, they, it was in Latin. They didn't want it to be translated in any other language because people didn't speak Latin commonly. And so, yeah, you had to be more educated, and they loved that. So when people started translating it into English and all these other things, um, what, Dutch, and I can't remember the whole backstory, they fought against that. So um, look at Psalm 19.7. So let me just give you a scripture back to the Old Testament, back to Psalms. Psalm 19.7. Let me just give you an example of where the scripture would say, look, this message, yes, sometimes it requires more digging and study and diligent prayer about about, um, application and understanding what's going on and 
like Ronnie said, that some of the times the cultural setting takes a little bit of time to dig to understand. But look, Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. I was talking about God's word up to that point, essentially. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So it causes the soul to return to the Lord. And then it says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Well, that word simple means the inexperienced, the naive or inexperienced. So look, if the simple or the naive can grasp God's word, how can it be just for the professionals? The Bible isn't written just for academics and scholars, but for everyone. In fact, one of the ways we know that, does anybody know in the New Testament, one of the ways that we know that? What language was the New Testament originally written in? Greek. Okay, but there's different levels of Greek. You can study classical Greek, which is a very high reformed I would almost compare it to, I don't mean to insult Mexico, okay, but I would almost compare it to Spain versus Mexico. Spain, they're very proud. They speak Spanish a certain way, and it's a high form of the language. Mexico is more common everyday Spanish, right? There's even a distinction, kind of similar. You have classical Greek. It's very high language, very refined. And then you had what's called Koine Greek, common, everyday Greek. Guess which one the Bible, the New Testament was written in? Now, Luke's writing is a little more difficult and advanced, but guess which basic form? The common, the koine. What's the point? God's, God's saying, that was the English of that day. God's saying, this is for everybody. This is not, I'm not putting this on the top shelf where the kids can't get to it. No, no, no. This is for kids. Remember, the, the kids come to Jesus and they want to say hi to him and he wants to love on him and stuff, and the disciples say, no, 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 get out of here because... You know, culturally speaking, they didn't have much value. And so Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Uh, you come to me, you come to me as a child. So how else could you obey Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 and Ephesians 6, 4 when those passages teach us and tell us to teach this to our kids? How else could you obey that if the Bible was just for the professionals? Or just, oh, leave it to the professionals. They're the ones who can understand it, you can't. So this is just utter nonsense. Um, if this was just for the intellectual elites, why do we have a wanna? Why teach them God's word if they can't understand it, right? But we do. We have a wanna because it is for them. This is also why you bring your Bible with you to church, even if you find different translations, read it on your phone. That's why you bring it with you to church. Why? Why do you need to? Well, if, if we believed it wasn't for everyone, if we, didn't, if we denied the priesthood of the believer, is the doctrine you find in the New Testament, and Peter and some other guys refer to it. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't discourage you to do that. We'd say, no, 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 don't bring your Bible to church. We'll bring ours. We'll read from this. We'll tell you what it means. Don't ask questions and just go along with it. But what does it say in Acts 17, 11? It, it, it speaks honorably or highly of the Bereans. What was different about them? Do you remember, does anybody know? What did the Bereans do? Exactly. She said, so, so they heard Paul and they said, look, we're listening to what you say with an open mind. But she said, they searched the scriptures daily to see, okay, does this line up with God's character, God's nature, what we have up to this point that we know is from him? So they, they listened to him, but they checked it against the word. So that, that's it. You didn't have Paul saying, hey, don't worry about this. You had them checking it. So the, the Bible is clear as the Holy Spirit moves you to understand it. That's what I would ultimately say for that section one. Okay, section two, interpretation. A little bit more time here. We'll have a few technical terms tonight for this section two, but I'll explain them, okay? So I'm not just going to throw them at you and, and move on. What is it? I can't remember who said it. Oh, it wasn't Alistair Begg. I think he was quoting someone else. He said, you don't, he's talking about the importance of explaining the text, and he said, you don't want a preacher to just throw the word at you and not explain it and then just move on and say, okay, now you figure it out. You don't want someone who's teaching to not explain it, just throw the word at you. Just like your, if your wife makes dinner, you wouldn't want her to just make it and then throw the food at you and then walk up and say, okay, we're, you know, and not eat with you and not let you taste it and enjoy it. And I, I got a kick out of that. Okay, section two, interpretation. Here's a fancy word number one, okay, but I'm going to explain it. Exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, exegesis. 
why are you giving me this uh, seminary word? Well, let me explain. You'll see. Exegesis. It is the careful, systematic study of the Scriptures to discover the original intended meaning. That's exegesis. The careful, systematic study of the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Bible, to discover the original intended meaning. In other words, the word means out of. It's, it's Meaning comes out of the text of Scripture to you. It comes from the Scripture to you, not the other way around. That's the opposite of eisegesis, not exegesis, but eisegesis. That is where the reader, so let's say you're the reader, the reader gets to put into the passage whatever they want. Meaning comes from you into the text of Scripture. What my preaching professors called, excuse the pun, ladies, but it, I think is an accurate description, what, what my preaching professors at college, at seminary, called raping the text. And that is what you're doing. When I want to read this, and I want it to say this, so I'm going to force this meaning onto the text. No, 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 no. You let the Scripture speak for itself and bring meaning out of the text. Um, there's a couple of other errors to avoid as, avoid as you're doing interpretation. One error to avoid is spiritualization. Spiritualization. Let me explain a little bit what that means. Some people call it mysticism when they're referring to it, spiritualization. It's looking underneath the text to discover a deeper meaning. The meaning's right there on the top of the text, but it's looking underneath. In other words, God's fingerprint or design can lie underneath the text, but not the meaning. So this would be, um, y'all may have heard of equidistant letter sequencing. If you haven't, you can look it up. Um, Gamatria, equidistant letter sequencing, where they say, here's every seven letters in the Hebrew, there's this, and it spells out this, and and so here's this. Well, okay, that might be a fingerprint that God wrote it, that this this supernatural architecture that's underneath the text, but that is not where the meaning lies. The meaning for all of us lies in what the text says, in what the original author writing that letter meant to say. So any system that looks underneath the text for anything more than God's fingerprint, for meaning, for another message. Okay, it says this, but really it means this. That is false. Uh, Gnosticism does stuff like that. Um, Cults do things like that. If you've heard of Kabbalah, Kabbalah does stuff like that with the Jewish uh, writings and some of the Old Testament. Um, initiate uh, Initiate understood only groups do stuff like that. That is not where meaning lies. Meaning is just right there for everybody to see. Meaning lies in the author's intent. Why did the author write this letter? What's he saying? That's where the meaning lies. Okay, the uh, second, and then we'll move on to interpretive principles. Second error to avoid is over-personalization. Over-personalization. First one, spiritualization, or over-spiritualization, you might say, or mysticism. The second one is over-personalization. The author of this book gave an example of this where an actual example True story, where a woman whose son was named Mark, who struggled, uh, Mark struggled with drug addiction, she was studying Psalm, listen to this, you don't have to turn there unless you just want to, Psalm 37, 37, I'll read it real quick. She was just reading through the Bible, she hit Psalm 37, 37, her son's name's Mark, he's struggling with addiction, it says, Mark the blameless man and observe the upright for the future of that man is peace. Okay, and then so... She took comfort by reading that because she said, oh, my son's name is Mark. But okay, Mark in that verb is being, in that verse is being used as what part of speech? A verb. She used it as a noun. Oh, this is my son, Mark. The Bible wasn't speaking about her son, Mark, but was saying, mark it out. It was talking in context about how God will reward people who follow him, even in the face of wicked people who seem to be prospering. What it's saying is, in the end, wicked people don't prosper at all. They, they will for t- a short time, but in the end, they don't. So that's it. So over-personalization, I think you get a flavor for what I mean there. Okay, interpretive principle number one. Let's go through some interpretation principles. Next week, we're going to look at actual. Okay, here's what it says. Then I've studied it. Here's what it means. So how do I use it? How do I actually apply it? Next week, we'll look at that. Application. What does this actually mean? How do I obey this text? How do I submit to what it says? Okay, interpretation principle number one. We're still in step two. We're still, we talked about reading. What does it say? Now we're talking about um, study. What does 
it mean? Okay, so principle number one, context is key. Uh, Some of my profs even said context is king, K-I-N-G, but context is key. Principle number one, context is key. And sometimes what Ronnie mentioned I think can be helpful. Sometimes reading different translations can be helpful. Uh, So what is going on? What I want to find out is what's going on in the passage or chapter or letter that you're studying. So uh, one of our Bible studies that we do here is called an inductive Bible study. Very similar idea, okay? So you want to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how of the text. Who's, who's acting? Who, who's this about? When, what, where, why, how. You want to ask all these questions of the text and get a flavor for what's going on. If you don't look at the context of a passage of Scripture, and later I'll give you some tools that can help with understanding context. If you're still struggling to grasp what's going on in, in cultural setting or whatever it is, if you don't look at the context of a passage of Scripture, it's easy to read something into the passage that was never meant to be there. For example, sometimes people misunderstand when it said, um, you have Joseph and Mary in the gospel account. Mary's pregnant. She's never been with a man sexually, but she's pregnant. Okay, Only time this has happened in human history, right? The virgin birth. Joseph, well, the Greek literally implies he fumed over. He, while he thought about these things or fumed over these things, he at first had intended, before God told him, went to him and said, don't do this. Take her to be your wife. She has, she's been true to you. This is of God. He first, it says, he was going to send her away, divorce her, literally, privately. So not throw her under the bus publicly, which he could have, but divorce her privately. And we read that and we think, send her away or divorce her? What? They're not married. Well, when you understand the context, back then it was almost as if you were. You weren't together physically yet until the ceremony, but when you were betrothed or engaged, it was as good as a done deal. You had already agreed to go through with the marriage. Y'all see that? Whereas culturally today, we don't view it that way. We think, okay, well, you can engage. That is a serious commitment. But if something happens that you say, oh, wait a second, you falsely represented who you were or something like that, you can break it off before the wedding and we don't consider that a divorce. So see how cultural settings can, can change. And it's important to understand the context and the cultural setting of, of that day, okay, of, of what was going on then. Let me show you real quickly. Slide over. Let me show you an example, another one. Slide over to 1 Peter 3. So you go New Testament, go a little past Hebrews, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. I'm going to pick on the apologetics people a little bit, okay? I, apologetics is a field of study that gives, is, is good. It's beneficial. So I like it. I'm not saying I don't like it. It gives you um, readiness to defend the faith and the gospel to someone who just asks questions. One of the most popular questions, for example, it equips you to answer them with Scripture. For example, one of the most popular ones is um, theodicy. It's If God's all good and God's all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Evil in the world must mean that God is either not good or he's not all powerful. He doesn't want to stop it or he can't or both. It must mean one or the other or both, they would say. And so so that's the field of apologetics. It equips you to give a biblical, thoughtful, respectful, polite, hopefully, answer to this this critic of of Christianity. And so they use 1 Peter 3.15 as their usually as their motto verse. But, and again, that's, it. that's an important field of study, but that's not what Peter's saying. Okay, look at 1 Peter 3.15. He says, sanctify, set apart, give them a special place that no one else has, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, and here's what the defense is of, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Well, if you zoom out and you look at 13 through 17, which I would challenge you to go do. We're not going to take the time to do all of it tonight. But if you zoom out and you look at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, for example, it says, verse 13, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So what's the context? The context is, 
I'm suffering for Christ. That's what Peter's talking a lot about in his letter here. Suffering for the cause of Christ. So what is, okay, if I take 315 in context, it's not talking about apologetics. There are other verses that I think would do that. Apologetics is legit. But that's not what 15 says. When they ask you, you're suffering. How do you tell me that you still have hope when you're going through this intense suffering for the God you claim to follow, for his purpose? How do you still hold on to hope? And that's what Peter's teaching them to do in his letter here. And so he's saying, always be ready to give a defense when they ask you, you know, you're following your God, but he's not really showing up for you right now, it doesn't look like. He's letting you go through this suffering and that and that and that, and you still say you have hope. What? What in the world are you insane? That kind of question, Peter's saying, be ready. Be ready to give a defense and say, and then he goes on to equip them with the attitude and what to say. So that's number one, principle number one, context is key. Okay, ready for the next principle? Principle number two. It's the literal principle or what some people call the natural principle. The literal or the natural principle, okay? Principle number two. Interpreting scripture, here's what it means. Interpreting scripture in its normal, natural sense. This doesn't mean that every passage is being literal. It depends on the genre that you're in. Many are figurative, like poetry. If you're reading a poetry section of scripture, like in many of the Psalms, well, sometimes it's, it's intent, but it's obvious that it's being figurative. It it's, uh, doesn't mean that you take every passage as being literal, but that you take each passage at face value. In other words, you want to interpret the Bible as the kind of writing it is in that particular passage or letter or phrase. So you want to ask, the literal principle would say, you want to ask questions like this, okay? Question number one, is it a narrative? Is it a story or a narrative? Like in the Gospels, it's full of narrative. Question number two, okay, is the passage I'm in didactic, which is a fancy word for saying teaching. So that would be like a lot of Paul's letters is instructive. Do this, don't do this, stay away from this, watch out for that. Is it, is it prophecy like Joel, like Isaiah that have a lot to say about future things and these visions? Or is it poetry? Is the genre I'm in poetry? The Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are these amazing poetic, um, although I disagree with the over-allegorization teaching that Song of Solomon is only about Jesus and his church. There are some sexual, clear sexual references that, um, anyway, that's, it's about a bride and a groom on their wedding night. But uh, when, Psalm, when Solomon still was doing it right before he got all these other women and was acted a fool, uh, when he had it right, his first love. So is it poetry? Is that where I am? So let me give you an illustration. I actually had this come up not too long ago in our foundation class, so it's great. 1 Corinthians 15 so take a left if you're in 1 Peter, or if you're in Psalms, take a right. Go to 1 Corinthians, right after Romans, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, right? Paul says, you stand on the gospel, but the gospel requires the resurrection of Jesus. And if he didn't resurrect, your gospel's empty that you're supposedly standing on. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, check this out, this word, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 18, and, ver- and then we'll look at 20. How are we on time? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep, some translations render this differently, but the New King James has fallen asleep. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in this life only we have hope. He's talking about if there's no resurrection. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead, in other words, so there is a resurrection, and has become the firstfruits of those who have, there's that phrase again, you see it, fallen asleep. Well, that's a euphemism. That's a figure of speech used for dead. They're dead. It doesn't teach soul sleep, the idea that you just cease to be cognizant or aware that you exist when you die until the certain period of time. When you, no, 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 no. Uh, now, how does God reconcile that? How does someone go die physically and go to be with Jesus immediately? Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So how does, he wasn't kidding, was he? He wasn't using figurative language. It wasn't poetry where he's being allegorical. He's saying, literally, you're with the Lord. 
Your body may not be, but your spirit and your soul, they're there. Your body's going to be reunited with your spirit and your soul with him in the resurrection. But you're with the Lord right away. There's no soul sleep. So it's not teaching soul sleep. But until you, and again, we're going to mention some tools to help you in this later. But until you have a good study Bible or a good study tool to say, oh, that Greek term is used to imply dead, not to say, okay, they're literally sleeping. Um, you, then you understand, okay, it's not talking about soul sleep. Actually, I had somebody ask me that question because they were reading through and she raised her hand and she said, okay, so I've heard something about soul sleep. So what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, he's teaching soul sleep. And I was saying, no, 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 no. That's just a euphemism for they're dead. Okay, but you know, we find nice ways to say, how do we say it today? They passed away. And that's just a nice, cordial, respectful, they died. But that's a nice, cordial, respectful way to say it, okay? So that's, that's what they're doing there. Okay, principle number three, the grammatical principle. Grammatical principle. Y'all, some of you are going to th- want to throw your Bible or something at, or your pen at me when I talk about this one, because you don't like grammar. But okay, just listen. You, 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 you've got to do a little bit of it. What are the nouns? What are the verbs? If you have to buy grammar for dummies and do a quick refresher course for the English, that's fine. That's fine. Do that. What are the nouns? Nobody's going to laugh at you for doing that, despite the title of the book. What are the nouns? What are the verbs? What are the adjectives that modify or explain the nouns? What are the adverbs that explain the verbs? What are the prepositions? To the road, in the way, it, you know, whatever. Pay attention to those because those actually have meaning. Let me show you an example, Okay. For some of us, that comes easier, and my mom taught grammar, so she always drilled that into us, stuff like that, so we, you know, um, but for some of us, it comes more difficult, and that's fine, that's fine, but okay, here we go. Let me show you an example of why this matters, why it's important. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, so the last part of the gospel of Matthew, the first gospel, first book of the Bible, first book of the New Testament, Matthew 28, that was not a Freudian slip, I do believe in the Old Testament, I'm not Andy Stanley. Um, I do believe the Old Testament is also for today. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Okay, y'all ready? Okay, listen. Pay attention, listen. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Some of you are familiar with this passage. Some of you may not be. Go therefore and make... He said, I've got all authority, period, and I'm giving it to you. So, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, or, or listen, or catch this, and listen up, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, <clears throat> um, when you start to delve, and again, we're going to talk about tools that will help you do this. When you start to delve into this, you understand that There's a couple types of verbs in the Greek. An indicative verb is a statement of fact. An imperative verb is a command. And when I mention Blue Letter Bible, and I also mention Bible Hub, you can go to Bible Hub Interlinear. Remember I said that last time, and you can read the English with the Greek or Hebrew on top and click on the Strong's word and see what it means. You can see how it's being used. At the bottom, there's a little blue symbol with initials that you'll say, what in the world does that mean? You just slide your mouse or cursor over that and leave it sitting there, and it'll show you what it is. Is it an imperative or not? An imperative being a command. Well, what you'll find is um, the main verb in this passage, a lot of people preach this passage, and they say the main verb is go in verse 19. The main verb is not go. The imperative verb, the command, the main verb, is make disciples and actually, the second one, believe it or not, is low, or listen, or remember this fact. I'm with you as you do this. So the main verb that it starts with is make disciples. That's the imperative. Going, baptizing, and teaching, what you find when you look at the grammar. Going, baptizing, and teaching are participles of the main verb that tell you how the main verb should be done. So as you're making disciples, you're, you're going, you're, actually, technically, it's having gone. It's heiress. But anyway, having gone... Uh, make disciples, and here's what that looks like, baptizing, teaching. So you're not obedient to this passage simply by going somewhere, so grammar matters. You're being obedient to this passage by making disciples wherever it is that you go. Do y'all see the difference? 
I mean, I know sometimes it can be subtle, but sometimes it's important. There's a, there's a big distinction there. Okay, those of you who I just lost because I talked about the importance of grammar and you hate me right now, let's move on to the next one. Principle four, the historical principle. We only have five. Principle four, the historical principle. The historical principle. So that was the grammatical. Now we're on historical. Okay, so people don't change. We're essentially the same. And God and his truth certainly does not change, but cultures do. Cultures do change. Remember when I talked about in Jewish culture back in the gospel days, if you were engaged, it was the same commitment as if you'd already been married. You just hadn't gone through with the vows and the sexual union yet. Cultures change. Cultures change. So it's important to consider the author, the setting, the audience when you're studying scripture. And a good study Bible with introduction notes can help explain that, like mine. Mine will have, so for example, Matthew. Mine will have, um, and a good study Bible will have this. Mine has author, talks about Matthew, and why we know it's him. Date, purpose, why did he write it? Content, personal application, Christ revealed, and the Holy Spirit at work. So that's how mine breaks it up. Yours might break it up. But that read those sections. It helps you understand, okay, what's going on? What's the section? If there's a note about that particular verse, read that. Sometimes that can be helpful. The ESV Study Bible is one of the best resources that I've ever seen for historical, cultural type of notes. Hey, this is what's going on in the culture historically at this time. The ESV Study Bible is fantastic. If you're going to buy the hardback version of that, it's worth every penny you're going to pay for it. I don't Whether you find it on sale or not, it's worth it. Um, so I'd recommend that for that reason, the ESV Study Bible. Those study notes are fantastic. Um, how did this passage apply? Here's the question. How did this passage apply to its original audience? So, for example, Paul's letter in the New Testament to Philemon. Anybody read Philemon? It's a short, short letter. Asking him to show mercy to his slave. His slave was named Onesimus, who had run away. At some point, he was led to Christ by Paul and is now returning to deliver Paul's letter that's written to Philemon. Okay, In Paul's writings in Philemon and other letters he writes, like to Timothy, Paul does not condone slavery. But he, what he does do, he does speak to a culture in which slavery existed, and he gives the servants instructions on how to value their master, and he gives the master instructions on how to value and properly treat the servant. You know, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, wait a second, why didn't Paul rebuke the institution itself and say, you're a horrible person for, and, and, you know, off with his head or throw, you know, overthrow the system. But look, it's important to understand some dis- distinctions, cultural differences. Although it's not an ideal situation back then, it is a situation that many people found themselves in. The majority of the Roman Empire at that time was servants, just numerically speaking. So to not address these roles would have been to not apply God's truth to a huge number of people in the Roman Empire. It would have been doing them a disservice for Paul to say, look, most of you are servants, but I'm not even going to address how you're to act toward your master and your master's how, how he's supposed to treat you. Right? Are y'all following me? Okay, and, and here's, here's another important thing to keep in mind. Not to address these roles would have, been, um, would have been to not apply God's truth to a massive amount of people. So um, Paul was saying, look, I want you to serve Jesus no matter what social structure you're in no matter where you find yourself in that culture. And there's a couple differences that's important to know. Cultures change. We don't understand this. Difference number one in what we think of as slavery and what he's talking about. Difference number one, back then you could buy yourself out of slavery. When we think of slavery in America, well, you, you typically could not, but back then you could. In fact, that's what the slavery was most of the time. It was an indebtedness to that person that you had to work off. So they owned part of your income. But if we're being honest and defining it that way, is that very different than today, economically, in our culture? The borrower is servant to the lender, the proverb says. Has that truth ceased to be true because we live in America? No, it's still true. Part of your, in a sense, you're working, and if you owe a debt on whatever it is, part of your labor is already assigned, y'all follow me, to that person. And, and the courts even back it up if it's a legitimate debt. So, so um, difference number one, back then you could buy yourself out. When we think the word slavery, we think of a situation where you couldn't. And difference number two, 
Ours in America was an ethnic slavery based on the color of skin or, or country of origin. Theirs was ba- a slavery based on poverty. That a, a, a parent would, would sell a kid into slavery, to servanthood, to work off a debt, or they themselves would say, okay, I'm going to put myself under, under servanthood to you to work off this debt. Whatever it was, whatever debt they incurred. Without understanding some of this historical and cultural background, of Philemon, it would be difficult to properly interpret a letter like Philemon. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Do y'all see why? I mean, because if you just couch it in terms of today's language and today's culture, you wouldn't, well, wait a second. Why is Paul sending a slave back to a slave owner? We know that a lot of slave owners, not all of them did, we know that a lot of slave owners here in America mistreated their slaves and were horrible to them and fathered illegitimate children by some of the women, all kinds of stuff went on. And so, but, if you, but you're thinking of the wrong context. You're thinking of the wrong cultural setting. So that's important. Okay, last principle under section two, the synthesis principle. Weird word, but let me explain it. The synthesis principle. S-Y-N, synthesis principle. Here's all that means. I mean, theologians love to use big words so they can sound fancy, but here's all that means. It's not fancy. It's interpreting scripture with scripture. That's it. Since truths in Scripture work together and not against each other, why do we know that? It's the same source. Who authored Scripture? Men did, but who's the source? God, the Holy Spirit of God. He's not going to contradict himself. So since truths of Scriptures work together, not against each other, it's important that your interpretations of them don't contradict each other. So the synthesis principle would say this. If you're in a difficult passage, for example, that's hard to interpret, you can interpret it with the passages that deal with the same issue that are more clear than the passage that you're in. See that? I'm in a difficult passage. I'm not sure what this is saying. Let me go to some other ones. Well, let me go back to Philemon as an example. If you go into Exodus, the penalty for grabbing, for kidnapping, literally the word was kidnapping, the penalty for taking someone by force as a servant, not someone who willingly puts themselves under like Philemon. This helps us know this too. But in Exodus, the penalty for kidnapping, forcing someone to become your slave by physical force, death penalty. If you were found in possession of someone who'd been kidnapped as a slave, today we might might use uh, sex trafficking trafficking as an illustration of that. In Exodus, it was was death penalty. Kill him. So look, God's not okay with that. And again, different things are going on in Philemon's day when he's talking about that. There's a different nuance So, if you're in a difficult passage, hard to understand, interpret it with passages that deal with the same issue that are a little more clear. So, there are tools. Let me give you some if you want to write these down. There are tools available to you to help you do this. Uh, Number one, a reference Bible or a good study Bible with study notes will give you other passages that say the same thing or deal with a similar concept. Mine will give you verses that say similar things, and then in brackets, it'll give you something that doesn't use the same words, but it's the same basic idea. So a good reference Bible. Number two, a concordance, like Strong's, exhaustive concordance, gets you a good concordance. It can help with this. Um, number three, a commentary, a biblical commentary. I, I don't recommend them all, but if, if you're, you're safe if you're with someone like Warren Wearsby, if you're with someone like um, uh, John Phillips, uh, MacArthur, something like that, that's going to be a little more solid, okay? Um, Number four, other members of your local church. Sometimes we don't think of this. Remember, I talked about this last week. Can also help you point in the right direction. Sometimes they're gifted in areas where you're not. Go to whoever teaches your Bible class. Go to one of the teachers here. Something like that. Um, Let me show you real quick. Illustration. Go to Galatians 2.16. Let's look at an illustration of principle five, the synthesis principle. Galatians 2, 16. And then we'll look at James 2, 24. Just those two passages. Galatians, so Paul writes that, dealing with legalism. So he's arguing against legalism. Um, Galatians 2, 16. And he say, ultimately he's going to say, look, if you're led by the Holy Spirit of God, who God put in you, you don't have to worry about legalism. He's going to lead you to obey God's law. But anyway, Galatians 2.16, it says, 
knowing that a man is not justified, made right with God, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. In other words, you can't do enough good stuff to to earn this. No. But by faith in Jesus Christ, correct? And what he did for me. Yeah. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You see that? Paul's not unclear, correct? He's very clear. Okay, now, look at James. So slide over to the right. Go just past Hebrews into that section of the Bible where if you flip up two pages too far, you're four books over <laughs> with shorter letters. Okay, James 2, 24. So we looked at Galatians 2, 16. Now let's look at James 2, 24. As we're uh, almost wrapping up here. James 2, 24. So what did Paul just say in Galatians 2? If, y'all had to, if someone had to paraphrase that for me or sum it up, what did he say in Galatians 2? You're saved by faith, not by works. And to be technical, a Bible teacher, when I first started following God again, and a great teacher, he would always say, you're saved by grace through faith. And Yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's a more accurate. But yeah, you're saved by faith. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ and what he did for you, not by works, correct? Okay, that's right. But, what, but we'll look at the context. What is Paul fighting against in Galatians? You might not know this when you first read chapter 2, but when you study the whole letter, if you have a good study Bible or, or a commentary that gives the context, what's Paul arguing against or fighting against in Galatians? Legalism. You're saved by obeying the law. So these Judaizers would come by to the church, these guys getting saved. They'd come by to these non-Jews. So what do we know about non-Jews back then? They're not what? Circumcised. Okay, so they, the Judaizers would come in and they go, hey, you found Christ, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. They'd come in after Paul. Paul got so furious at this. In fact, he said, should I repeat this? Well, it is in the Bible. I can repeat this. It's in the Bible. He said, you know what I wish they would do instead of circumcising themselves? I wish they'd just cut the whole thing off. So Paul was furious, and he put that in the Bible, believe it or not. He said, those guys are false teachers. Don't listen to them for a second. They'd come in, and they'd say, oh, you're a Gentile? You found Christ? Well, wait a second. Have you been circumcised? Well, no, I haven't. Well, to be saved, it's, you have to come in through Judaism, through the law, so you have to be circumcised. And Paul was saying, no, that's ridiculous. So what's Paul arguing against when he made a statement in chapter 2? Legalism and, and that whole idea. Okay, James, that's Paul. James, and when you read Acts, uh, I, th- maybe this is just me, I do sense a little bit of tension between them with some oaths that Paul had agreed to take and some... <laughs> they never disagreed, but I think there seems to be a little bit of tension there. But what's James fighting against in his letter? What, do you all know? Anybody that studied James? What's James arguing against? Not, not the same thing Paul is, by the way. James is arguing against what we call today easy believism. I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. Check that box. I'll go live my life now. Uh, I have my fire insurance. Thanks, bye. And what we call easy believism. Oh, just trust Christ, and then you, know, you can live however you want. James is fighting against that extreme, saying, no. If you're truly saved, it's going to come with good works. It must. It'll look different. Sometimes they'll be crushed temporarily or or limited by certain things. Um, It may take longer for some than others, yes. But eventually, true, genuine saving faith is going to have good works with it, growing over time, obviously, correct? Okay, that's what James is fighting against. So you've got to understand they're fighting against two different things. What does James say in two 24. But remove what I just told you. Forget what I just told you and just read verse 24 of James 2. You see then that a man is justified, same word, made right with God, by what? What's that next word? Works. Wait, what? Paul just said you're not. James said you are. You see then that a man is justified by works, but then read the next phrase. And not by faith. What's the next word? Only or alone. What is he saying? He's not disagreeing with Paul. It's like they have their backs to each other. What's that movie where they're fighting and they say, we'll just sit with our backs to each other. They have their backs to each other. Paul is fighting against one extreme called legalism. 
James has his back to Paul. They're not fighting each other. They have their backs. And James is fighting the opposite extreme, easy believism. He's saying, no, true faith will have works with it. So James and Paul are not arguing against each other. Instead, they have their backs together, and they're fighting against those two extremes. But it's not easy to, although he does say faith alone, it's not just faith. faith true faith works together with these good works. It comes with it. It's a package deal, in other words. So you can't just say, well, thank you, Jesus, and then there's no other evidence in your life at all, I mean at all, of that salvation. Again, ultimately, that's between them and the Lord, but you kind of have to look at that and go, ooh, I, I, that was probably not genuine. It was probably not genuine faith. It's hard to know for sure. That's why I always say it's between them and the Lord, but it, usually there's fruit. It's really obvious. So do you, okay, do you all see how that, Principle number five, the synthesis principle, interpret scripture with scripture. Do y'all see how that works for Galatians 2 and James 2? They're not in contradiction to each other. They're actually, once you begin to dig, they do look like it at first, but they're actually. So I would say this as another, I didn't even have this down in my notes. I would say this is another principle or another idea or concept for you. When you run into a passage that seems extremely difficult or seems to, especially ones that seem to contradict something else you know from God's word, keep digging because nine times out of 10, there's a really important, valuable jewel of truth there that will give you deeper understanding of why scripture does not contradict itself and it'll equip you with something you probably didn't even know or grasp before that. So I would not skip over those and go, oh, that's too difficult, I'm not gonna deal with it. Like, okay, here's a homework assignment. So your homework section. I don't even have this in my notes, but I'm going to add this. Here's a homework assignment. Go to the passages in the Old Testament where God laughs. Laughs. God mocks and laughs at them when they're going through calamity and tough times. And you say, that doesn't seem like God. What's going on here? Okay, there you go. There's a passage that you say, wait a second. Tap the brakes. Dig. Dig there. Because I guarantee you, if you invest the time and the prayer and the understanding of saying, what are you saying here, God, that it's, you're going to see, A, it doesn't contradict who God is, and B, you're going you're to grab a lesson that's deeper that you, you're going to gain sometimes information that you said, oh, I didn't know that before. So the bottom line for, for all these interpretive principles, section number two, the bottom line is that you find the forest or the main point of the passage, not just the trees. You don't just see a couple of trees, you see the whole forest. Okay, homework. Y'all ready for the last section? Homework. Then we're done. Homework. Uh, simply put, study God's word. <laughs> this could be alone with a friend, with a spouse, or, or a study in your local church. Study God's word. Don't just read it. Study it. The ladies are doing a Bible study on Tuesday mornings at 930. Uh, the guys do different studies, and sometimes they do different breakfast groups. And um, if you don't have one and you want to meet, Grab another guy and go, hey, let's meet every week for coffee. Study God's word. Number two, make it your goal not just to read the Bible, but to study it, to find out what does it mean. Number three, last, uh, helpful tools. Just to mention a few more. That would be mature believers in your local church, including pastors. Uh, Bible dictionaries. Those explain some of the cultural background and things like that. Bible encyclopedias. If you don't have one of those, those are great. Bible encyclopedias. A Bible concordance where you can do a word study and look at different passages like Strong's. If you want to get super geek mode, these are very expensive, but it's a good addition to your library is a Bible lexicon. A lexicon is basically what popped into your brain when I said dictionary. Dictionary explains something a little different or more than you would think. A lexicon is basically a dictionary, what we think of today. It says, here's what this Greek word means. Here's the semantic range of meaning that it has throughout the scripture, and it gives you a lot of helpful tools. Uh, study guides, you can look at a study guide. A good commentary, again, be careful there. And if you're clueless and you're not sure which commentary to grab, you know, again, go to your Bible teacher, one of us or something. Uh, go to your good Bible teacher or a good topical Bible, and a more advanced version of that saying the same thing would be to a systematic theology. Get a good, uh, Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M, not very expensive, has a one volume, you don't have to buy 50 books, one volume, Old and New Testament, whole Bible, uh, systematic theology, 
And what it does is it takes a topic. What does the Bible say about marriage? And it goes through all the scripture and says, here's how it started. Here's what it looks like. Here's why God didn't want it to change. God always, you know, and he just walks you through it. So Grudem, Systematic Theology. There's other good ones out there, but his is excellent. Uh, Wayne Grudem or Systematic Theology? Yeah, Systematic Theology. And I think that's actually the name of the book. That's a class in seminary, but that book is what a lot of the classes in seminaries will use, the conservative ones. Systematic Theology. Grudem is G-R-U-D-E-M. Grudem, Wayne Grudem. Fantastic. I didn't bring it in here tonight, but it's really good. Um, What else? Next time, we'll look at using the Bible. How do I apply it? And we'll look at actual passages. And again, we're loosely going through this book, How to Eat Your Bible. And then, I also wanted to point this out to you. This is fantastic. In the church I used to work at, they had, we had coffee mugs. This is by Howard Hendricks. We had coffee mugs with a picture of them like this. And it said, Howard Hendricks is my homeboy. <laughs> so it's great. <clears throat> so living by the book. Not the book, although that's good too if you get that. But particularly, I'm talking about the workbook. Not the regular, but the workbook goes more in depth, and it forces you to do the homework of digging into passages to see what they say. Living by the book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible, Howard Hendricks Workbook. Great resource. I thought we had some extra copies, but I couldn't find them. Great resource. If you guys, uh, I would recommend this extremely highly. It forces you to dig into a passage of Scripture and say, look at this passage. Observe it. What's going on? Who's in? And it forces you to do those mental exercises. Great. Uh, next time, we'll look at using the Bible, how do I apply it? Any questions? And then I'll wrap us up. Sorry to keep you all a bit long tonight. Any questions? We still beat Awana out of the gate, but I did go longer than I sometimes do. Any questions tonight that Hayden might want to answer? No. Any questions tonight for me? I know what you're going to do. One of you is going to come up afterward and go, I didn't want to ask this in front of everybody, but Anybody? How's Jimmy feeling? Is his knee okay? Okay. Okay, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the richness and the, your word is just, it's amazing. It's, um, we can have a meal from your word in the morning, middle of the day, at night. Uh, it's got encouragement. It's got a slap in the face when we need that, a correction uh, when we need it. And uh, then after it corrects us, it lifts us right back up. And it's just, it's an amazing resource that you've given us. You've gone out of your way to give us. And um, it's just, it's awesome. So Lord, I pray that we would never neglect to spend regular time, whatever that needs to look like, in your word. And that we would begin to equip ourselves with the right tools and the right training to learn how to not just read your word, how to study it and find out what does it mean. Not just what does it say, but what, is, what does it mean? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love y'all. We'll see you next time to wrap this up uh, week four.